This is a KTF Press podcast. Just think about it. When my mom got together with my father in 1963, interracial marriage was illegal. The idea of interracial marriage and biracial children being open, that was like unheard of. They didn't wait for a politician to decide or a judge to decide. They said, this is right. I'm willing to take a risk. People are people. But because of people like her, they created that, that conditions where it became a norm. I think ordinary people have tremendous power, and we shouldn't forget that. Welcome to Shake the Dust, leaving colonized faith for the kingdom of God. I am Jonathan Walton. And I'm Cy Hoekstra. Welcome to season three. We are so happy to have you here. We have an incredible guest today, CNN reporter John Blake. He's here to tell us all about his new memoir about his life, wrestling with faith, racism, mental health, and so much more. But before we get to that, a couple of things. First of all, as we mentioned in our announcement of season three, uh, which is the last thing that's in this podcast feed uh, before this episode... Susie LaHood will no longer be joining us, sadly, as the co-host of this show. It will just be Jonathan and I for now, though we will likely look for another permanent co-host at some point in the future. But I just wanted to flag that for people who may not have listened to the announcement. Second, if you want to support the work we do here at KTF Press, please go to ktfpress.com and consider becoming a paid subscriber. That gets you the bonus episodes of this show. It gets you our newsletter. That's where Jonathan and I curate media to help you in your discipleship and your political education. Uh, it supports this show and everything else we do at KTF Press, uh, the books, the articles, all of it. And until June 19th, we're having a season three launch sale. Get a full year of that subscription for 50% off. That's just $35 for the whole year. Go to ktfpress.com slash season three. That's ktfpress.com slash season and the number three. Our guest today is John Blake. He is an award-winning CNN journalist who has been honored by the Associated Press, the Society of Professional Journalists, the American Academy of Religion, the National Association of Black Journalists, and the Religion Communicators Council. A recipient of the GLAAD Media Award, he has spoken at high schools, colleges, and symposiums, and in documentaries on race, religion, and politics. Blake is a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and he's here to talk with us today about his new book, More Than I Imagine, what a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew. So, John, thank you so, so much um, for being with us on Shake the Dust today. I am deeply appreciative of it. I know Sai is, too. Um, we look forward to jumping in. Thank you. Um, and so this book um, is largely, I think, a memoir about like race and family and how they come in and out of each other and merge together, and particularly your relationship with your your black father's family, right, who you grew up with, and your your white mom who vanished when you were very young. Um, mm-hmm. And then this explicit thing of like nobody telling you why. Yeah. Um, and and like and the the story of like how you reconcile those things and and just this beautiful picture of Baltimore and how all these different places. And so can you orient us um, and the re- the people listening to this podcast a little bit? Um, where did you grow up? What was that like? And and what are we? What world are we stepping into when we grab your book? So I grew up in a, a very infamous neighborhood in West Baltimore, and most people know it through two, like uh, through a television show and a particular event. Most people know it through 
the HBO, HBO series, The Wire. That was my backyard. So when I look at The Wire, I'm looking at the place where I caught, caught the bus to go to school, uh, where uh, I stood on the corner with my friends. So I grew up in that world. But also that place is also people know it from the 2015 violent protests that erupted when Freddie Gray was arrested by police officers and died in police custody. It was one of the biggest racial protests in the country's history. So that's where I grew up. So my and so my neighborhood is this kind of like symbol of how intractable racism is. Uh, a lot of conservatives point to it and say, you know, you know, this is racism persists. They talk about things like the culture of pathology. It's a very poor uh, and violent place, and it's all black. And so I grew up there having a white mother, and not only just having a white mother, but having a white family and a white mother that I knew nothing about because they vanished from my life not long after I was born. All I was told when I grew up was that your mother's name is Shirley, she's white, and her family hates black people. That's all I knew. I didn't know what my mother looked like, the color of her eyes or hair. It was like I said in the book, it was like half of my identity was amputated at birth. So I grew up in this all-Black neighborhood where there was tremendous hostility to white people, a lot of poverty, a lot of violence, and knowing that I had this white mother and I had this white family that didn't want anything to do with me, that I thought hated me. You eventually figured out, you had kind of a revelation, that it, that it wasn't exactly racism that separated your parents. It was sort of a combination of mental illness, your, your mother's schizophrenia, and... Mm-hmm. uh I would say poverty and, and, you know, kind of the, the complete at the time, complete lack of supports for disabled people that were in place. Um, what was that realization like for you? How, how did I make that realization? I mean, how, how did it happen and what was it like for you? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Um, it, it taught me that, um, let me just put it this way. The first place I met my mom was a mental institution. Mm-hmm. No one told her. I was 17 years old on my way to college. I thought my mom was dead. And my mm-hmm. father just came to me one day and just said, do you want to meet your mom? Like, do you want to go to the store? <laughs> and the next thing I know, I'm driven out with my brother to this notorious uh, mental institution in rural Maryland called Crownsville that has since been closed down. And to give you an idea of how awful a place Crownsville was, uh, they used to abuse patients, chain them to the bed, um, put them through electroshock therapy. Mm. But, uh, and in fact, when it was closed down, it was it was used as a set for a horror movie. It was a horrible place. Mm. Oh, wow. So I was just driven out there with my brother one day. No one said, you're going to a mental institution. You're going to see your mom. She's, she's sick. They just drove us out there. We walked in this building and she comes out and that says, and that's our mom. And I pretty much figured out within 15, 20 minutes of meeting her that she had a severe mental illness. And to answer your question, what that realization did to me in that moment is kind of two things that I can think of off the top of my head. One is that just that sight suddenly widened my empathy. I had Mm. grown up in a world where white people were the enemy, where they could not relate to what it meant to be black, I thought, to be poor, to be looked down upon to be treated with contempt. But when I saw my mother in that awful place come out and I figured out that she had been in this place most of her life, I thought to myself, God, I've never even seen a black person suffer like that. 
So it's kind of enlarged my world within like 15 minutes of meeting her that, wow, other people suffer like us, and in some cases, more than some of us. So it did mm-hmm. that. And, and I think, secondly, that it just started me on this journey where I had to, how can I say, I had to somehow jettison a lot of these assumptions and hostility I had toward all white people because of how I grew up. So I guess the main thing is it just widened my empathy. And, and that's one of the reasons I, 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 I try to, well, that's one of the things I try to show in the book is that there are a lot of different attitudes about like, how do people change their racial attitudes? And I used to believe as a journalist, if you give them great arguments, you write great articles, you, you talk about reparations, you talk about slavery, you know, you, you hit, you cite your Ken Day, you cite your D'Angelo, you show them the George Floyd video, people will change. I don't believe that as much anymore. I think people change primarily through relationships and community. And um, one of the things I say in the book is facts don't change people, relationships do. And I say that because it started with meeting my mom. I started Mm. to change through meeting my mom and other members of my family. That had more effect on me than all those brilliant people like Jonathan I interviewed. Not to say, you know, those (laughs) things aren't important, but it's those relationships that really changed me. Mm. So... I, you know, me and Sai, we're writers, you're a writer. How we do things is intentional, right? And you, the way you wrote this book, it seems like there are very conscious decisions never to to indicate exactly where you were going and where you were going to land. Like we were immersed in every situation, what you were thinking at each moment. And like, I mean, I was just like, John knows how to write. So what's he doing? In like being the, I'm, I'm immersed in Southwest Boston. I'm immersed in your dad's house. I'm immersed in, um, eating the, the mashed tomatoes. Like I'm in there, right? Or yeah. stewed tomatoes. I'm in it. And it's like, oh, this is a book about racial justice and reconciliation. Could you talk a little bit about what prompted you to tell your story and then how you decided to tell it? Um, I think that the, the genesis for my story really began with the, um, the racial protest in 2015 with Freddie Gray. I was assigned by CNN to cover it. So I go back to my neighborhood and I see my, my childhood home, my school, my neighborhood, literally going up in flames and everything coming apart because of race. But at the same time in my private life, the white and black members of my family are coming together despite race. And I was like, how did this happen? Why? You know, I'm trying. So it's like a mystery. Like how, you know, like what, which really changes people. As a journalist, I've been writing about race for like say 25 years, and I've always looked for these inspirational stories that give me hope. And when I went back to Baltimore, I realized, wow, I might be living that story in my own life. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning of it. I wanted to figure out how did my how did I go from having this white family who wanted nothing to do with me, I had all this hostility, to us actually becoming a family. So that was the genesis of it. And as far as how I wrote it, um, and I tell you the truth, Jonathan, I was so daggone tired when I wrote it. It was like, I, I didn't, I, I don't know, you might be giving me more credit like than I, than I deserve for it. You know? But I, I wanted to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I say is that um, in the beginning, the only thing that can replace one story is another. And mm-hmm. I think people are driven primarily by stories. And I think, there are people who, who are very threatened by a diverse America in some ways who are better storytellers than those who want, who are not threatened by it. You know, to me, Make America Great Again is a story. 
like we used to be great. These people came in and they changed. We have to tell a story. So I figured when I, as I started writing it, I wanted to tell a story. And then when you tell a story, it's, it's not, you're not so much making an argument. You're trying to evoke feelings. You're trying to put people mm-hmm. there. And I wanted to show people how people changed, how I changed, how my mother changed me, how my mother's family changed me. And I figured the way you do that, that you don't come out with an argument, you just evoke feeling and you just put people in your shoes and you just mm-hmm. take them on a journey. And that's why I decided to write it that way. In our emotionally healthy activist work, we just talk about like moving from pity to incarnation. Oh, right? I like that. Right. So transitioning down, not just like feeling bad for someone and then yeah. sympathy, right? But like, or even compassion, like the Greek to like suffer with, but to really like, like you said, get into the, into somebody's world. And I think there's a, um, there's a gift in that, but also, like you said, there's a tiredness that comes when you're entering yeah. into it over and over and over again. And so for you to go from Baltimore to South Central, right? Yeah, yeah. And that then, really <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, you've, you've been in the thick of a lot of this stuff in some really pivotal moments. So, so again, just like, thank you for, for staying in it to be able to create a world that, that we can, can genuinely step into. Well, thank you. And, and, and just to add really quickly to that, um, you know, as I was writing this, I was still experiencing a lot of this. So I mm. didn't know where the story was going. Mm. A lot of <laughs> things were happening. I mean, really. And, you know, I'm a big I'm a big fan of, of jazz music and, 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 and part of jazz is improvisation and, and just follow. They, they talk about following the music. You don't know where it's going. And, you know, just like there are people who preach sermons where mm. they're improv. They don't know where it's going. And sometimes I think that's the best form of communication because it's authentic. It's real. It's not contrived. It's not planned. Like King's I Have a Dream speech, as we a lot of us know, he ad-libbed that ending. And that mm-hmm. made it all the more powerful. That wasn't part of the speech. So that's I tried to keep that attitude I was writing, too, to just be comfortable with not knowing where it's going. Just be honest at every place mm. where you are. Yeah. Because you don't say right up front, here's my thesis statement. Here's what I think, you know, is going to fix America's racial problem. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not writing that way. And so there was a lot of the book where I was, you really are just along for the journey. But where you do land, and I think what does kind of set a lot of the book apart is this idea of radical integration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk about, there's this, um, these old reports on integration from Nicole Hannah-Jones that, I remembered very well that you quoted that are about, um, you know, how, how there's kind of this propaganda, there's this myth around the fact that integration, school integration failed. It was actually mm-hmm. a remarkably successful experiment that was fought tooth and nail. And um, you, you talk about how radical integration you think was what helped you to heal, to reconcile with your aunt who had a lot of racist views and then, and you know, you think is kind of a way forward for a lot of our strife in the U.S. right now. Can you talk to us about, about that idea and why you think it's so important? Yeah, um, I'm going to tell you how discredited the term integration has become. I felt more nervous about writing about integration and revealing that I believe that white, black, and brown people can live together. I felt more nervous revealing that about myself than talking about the ghost. I mean, that's just... <laughs> We'll we'll get to the ghost, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'm serious. I mean, I mean, you know, to me, even 
integration is the uncoolest word you could even say now. It's, it's almost <laughs> as, as worse as post-racial. It's mm. been thoroughly like discredited, but I, I, I don't see, and I base this on my personal experience, I don't see how we survive as a multiracial, multireligious democracy when different groups are living apart and separate. Mm-hmm. And I base that on what changed me. As I said before, the reason to try to answer your question, I went back to it, is because when I looked at all the events that really changed me in my life, none of it had anything to do with the brilliant people and the brilliant books I read. It all came back to me being in situations around people who were different, who were different mm-hmm. races, who saw the world differently, but that enlarged me. And that, and that, that took away these stereotypes that I had. And I just don't think we can get forward as a country to, to do that. And so I didn't, I didn't, as I was writing about it, I came across this term radical integration. It was a paper written by Michelle Adams. And it just kind of illuminated a lot of things I believed. And one of the things she says, and, and also I think Nicole talks about that, is that people have a distorted uh, vision of what integration was meant to be. They think it's just sharing spaces. It's not just sharing spaces, it's sharing power, you know, mm-hmm. and that in integration, you don't stop, you don't become less black. So white people are more comfortable. And so those are some of the things I experienced that really changed me. And in the way, the place that I really experienced radical integration was a church. I was really fortunate to go to this tremendous integrated church in Atlanta. And I'm an integrated church veteran. I don't know about you, Jonathan. Yeah. I've been in a lot of uh, mm-hmm. racially mixed churches but they weren't integrated, meaning right. you had black, white, and brown people together, but all the leaders were white. All the mm-hmm. theology was, you know, Eurocentric, all mm-hmm. the music and everything. And, and I've been in those churches, but I went to this church that I call radically integrated because we, we just didn't share pews. We shared power. You know, there were, it, it, there were arguments, there were tremendous debates, but that was community. That's relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's where I experienced that. And so that's, I, as I look at what's happening, I don't see how we go forward. To me, I give you a prime example, and it's the last thing I'll say. Look at this, what happened with George Floyd. Three years ago, we had the largest social protest in this country's history. And now it's like it never happened. And this one guy, this professor who was writing about that experience said, it wasn't enough for people to go to those protests. If white people go to those protests, but they go back to their all-white worlds, and they send their children to their all-white schools, you're not going to really have lasting change. So I just think that people really, you, you need to have that tool. You have to have interracial communities. You have to have interracial relationships along with, you know, policy changes in power. I'm not, I think it's a real dangerous thing. I don't want to ever imply that if we just hug white people, racism will disappear. You know, I'm a big, <laughs> I'm a big believer in what Frederick Douglass says, you know, power can seize nothing without the man, never mm-hmm. has, never will. But what I am saying is that I think integration uh, and creating these communities is also an indispensable part of fighting racism. And I think we've forgotten that over the past couple of years. There's a, a scene in in your book from the church uh, yeah. in 20, 2016, where yeah. you describe a big church meeting um, where I, I don't remember if it was when Trump was elected or nominated or whatever, but you know, one of the, one of the white people in the, in the group gets up and says, we just need, we need more understanding. We need to better understand the people who yes. voted for Donald Trump. A lot of people reacted that way. And then a black woman gets up and says, um, why do we always have to be the ones to understand? Why can't yes. you ever reach out? Why can't you ever understand us? 
And I just end up thinking they're both right. <laughs> like it is so profoundly unfair that, and, and like it is also so, um, difficult for me to imagine, kind of like you're saying, any significant amount of change among white people, um, that doesn't involve somebody moving toward us. Like I, and I, and I say that because that's how I've seen it happen. Like I've seen it happen when people, like you said, are radical integration, they're in close proximity to each other, but that almost never involves, at least practically speaking, I don't think it almost never involves white people voluntarily going, I'm going to leave my comfort zone and just like skip on over here to this unfamiliar neighborhood and then learn a bunch of things that are difficult for me to learn that I don't really want to learn. I could leave at any time, but I won't. I'm just, how does it actually happen? John is what I'm saying. How does it actually happen in a way that isn't because you write in the book after that, that conversation, you walked away having heard that black woman get up and speak in your church, you were tired and you agreed with her and you didn't want to talk to white people anymore. And like that to me is 100% understandable. And I just don't know any other way to do it. Like, you know, I like, I just keep coming up against this seemingly intractable problem in my mind. Do you have any thoughts? (laughs) Yeah, there is another way to do it. And, uh, there's a very important person I, I mentioned in a book, a guy named Gordon Allport, one of the most important psychologists of the 20th century. He wrote a book called The Nature of Prejudice, which is a classic. And I just happened to stumble on it while I was writing a book. And he writes about, in one chapter, he writes about something he calls contact theory. And the whole chapter is about like, how do we change racial attitudes to get at what you're talking about? And he said, the way you change racial attitudes is that you get different groups together and you get them together where they have a larger common purpose that goes beyond race. And when you have those kind of situations, racial attitudes will change around, around white and black people. Meaning a lot of times we think if we get different groups together to talk about race, that creates racial change. What Allport is saying is that when you get different groups together to not talk about race, but to serve a larger common purpose, that's when you have tremendous racial change. For example, Mm -hmm. think about all the sports movies we've seen, like Remember the Titans, Denzel Washington, when you have all these different racial groups get together, you know, but they want to win a championship. And I think to try to answer your question, I have found when you have different groups, different people coming together for a purpose other than race, whether it's a 12-step program, whether it's a military, whether it's a championship team, it could be a national service program, you know, where people are trying to beautify the country and they come, they come together from different races. When you have that going on, then you can avoid that little dynamic you're talking about where, you know, black people always reaching out, white people don't want to. You have this dynamic where real serious change comes about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what happened to when I went to church. When I went to Oakhurst, yes, we talked about race, but we, were, we had a larger mission. We were all Christians. We all had this common faith that went beyond race. And I think that created those conditions. So it's kind of a weird thing. If you want to have people to get together in a group for racial change, have them get together, but don't have them talk about race all the time. Have a larger purpose. Having people who have similar uh, missions allows people to see others for who they are beyond a stereotype. Yeah, you see the the humanity of people. Like It has to be a larger common purpose. Like, for example, in my family, I gave a TEDx talk when I talked about my relationship with Aunt Mary, who who was the, the, the aunt who resist who resisted admitting that she was driven by racism. 
Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out how did she change so dramatically? Because I never lectured her. But I think part of the reason she changed is what Allport talked about, is that we had a larger common purpose. We had to come together to work together as a team to take care of my mom. We couldn't talk about race all the time. We had this other stuff to talk about, other stuff we had to deal with. But in doing so, I saw her her humanity. She saw my humanity in a way that I think was easier to do if we weren't always talking about race. Uh, John, so there's there's a point in this book where you talk about, as you mentioned, a ghost. You talk about yeah. being haunted, not metaphorically, literally haunted by a ghost. And it's, it is actually the ghost of your dead grandfather uh-huh. uh who was who was quite racist and you it, it becomes like a key kind of moment um uh-huh. for you in the book in terms of like how you dealt with that uh actually ends up you know being a key part of how you reconcile with your your aunt and your white family but you also say in the book that you were kind of afraid to tell your wife about um being haunted like this because you thought she might think, oh, he's he's showing early signs of hallucination of schizophrenia, like his his mother. Mm-hmm. And so you go from that now to you're writing a book about it. So you're telling the whole world about this ghost. And it was just interesting to me that you had that um, obviously very large change in how you thought about it. And also, you know, that you're a journalist, you trade in credibility. And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people who are going to hear a ghost story and think, and you know wonder what to think about it and i i just want to hear kind of where how that transformation happened and you know how you got to where you are now in terms of telling a story like that well thanks for asking those questions because uh i was very leery about putting that part in a book because i i had these visions of uh, me sending off the proposal and agents responding with you don't need an agent you need a therapist you know <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, and you mentioned my my wife and, you know, how would she react to it? But she had no choice but to react to it because mm. she saw what I saw, mm-hmm. you know, it, she saw it twice. And if, if it was just me, I would have never told anyone this story. Mm. But the thing is, this involved my wife twice and involved my brother. So I felt like I had to do something he wanted. And to, to try to answer your question, um, I felt like I had to include it because it was a pivotal part of my story. I only saw, and it was pivotal in this way. It taught me in a kind of weird way not to define a white person by their worst act. Because I had defined my grandfather as this man who called my father the N-word, who assaulted him, had him arrested, who hated black people. But what I saw him, these, these reappearances, whatever you want to call them, I saw that he was, I felt tormented by guilt by what he did. And that he had other good sides to him. And that for me to kind of, in a sense, come to terms with him, I had to understand that about him. I had to see him as more than just this boogeyman, but as a complex human being who was raised a certain way. And and that's how he acted. But he was more than that. So I, it, it, it taught me to have compassion for him. And like I said in the book, I said, in, in some ways, I haunted him. He didn't just haunt me. He didn't have any relationship with us. And, and I think he felt regretted about that. And to finally ask the other part of your question about credibility, I think for me, when I'm writing a memoir, the first important, the most important thing to write, to think about is the honesty, is the truth. And and I, I can't think about how people will react or the credibility. I just got to tell the truth. 
And that was a real pivotal moment in my life to really understand them. So I, I said, I can't worry about credibility. And, and finally, I will say this. I think there are a lot of people, more people than we believe, than we realize, who've had experiences like this. I mean, you, you think about it. The, the, the Bible is full of apparitions, yeah. ghosts, and parents. People have all sorts of experiences, synchronistic events, uh, appearances. I think these things happen to a lot of people, but we're afraid to talk about it. So I kept that in mind as well. And I said, well, maybe I won't feel alone. Maybe there are other people who say, you know what? Something like that happened to me. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. And you, you actually talked to a chaplain, a hospital chaplain at one point, who said he has yes. people who, when they're about to pass away, have all kinds of apparitions of like family members who are like ushering them to the afterlife. And, you know, you, you found other people. My point is who, who had had experiences helping people walk through stuff like this, who are actually religious leaders, including your father-in-law, who is, who's a a pastor. Um, so I don't know. I I just thought, I thought that was a really fascinating part of the book. And I I appreciate you telling, I appreciate very much the commitment to, um, honesty and truth and and the kind of empathy you're saying, like there are people who are going to relate to this and I'm going to, you know, they're going to be kind of the thumb on the scale, not the people who are going to roll their eyes at me or whatever. Well, let me ask y'all a question. Do y'all think, how do y'all think people will react to coming apart those, those kind of stories in the, about race? You know, how do you think people react to that? I think there are a lot of people. I actually, I, I agree with you. I think there are a ton of people who have stories like that, who are totally open to that kind of thing, who are, you know, if I obviously tons of people who are just kind of in more charismatic or Pentecostal um, parts of the church are just going to be like, yeah, stuff like that happens, whatever. You know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I def, I mean, for me, it's one of those things where like, oh man, somebody named it. like that like that that's what i think will happen they'll be like man he wrote it down that you know Mm. i I, or they'll just skip over it because like they don't it's not part of them yeah i mean but i do think more people will feel validated than people will be vindictive i don't really worry as much about people believe me or not because i'm telling you i envy people who say that's not real couldn't happen because it is an incredibly terrifying experience yeah i've I've had guns pulled on me. I've been in a situation I was always going to die, but I have never been as terrified as I was in that situation. I can't, I try my best to describe the fear, how my body reacted, but Mm -hmm. it's something that has no frame of reference, something totally alien. You think you're safe in your bedroom and you wake up and this, you see this and you're, I don't know how, I didn't know how to deal with it. So in, in that same vein, right? Your uh, description of being in church reading, you're sitting in the congregation, everyone's praising God, something in you wants to join them, but you leave instead of right. getting caught up in right. that, right? Um, right? And I'm wondering to myself, like, what caused you not to run away this time? Like, what has caused you and kept you walking with God, seeking out faith? trying to follow Jesus, like what has kept you on that path towards doing really, really, really hard things? Well, that's a deep question. Thank you. Um, as I think about it in the book, it's clearly a pattern of me running away from things. Like when I went to Howard, the last thing I wanted to be was become a Christian. And and all these people kept on coming up to me. and and But I felt like I had to make a choice. So to answer your question, I felt like there were all these moments in my life where it became clear to me that God was presenting a choice. 
And if I didn't make a choice, I was already making a choice. And that I had to decide that I couldn't run away, even if it was uncomfortable, even if it was scary, that if I was going to grow, I just had, I just had to stay in there and ride it out. I mean, I just, just the way I, I, I felt. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I've always, like, God has not felt distant to me. I just feel like God is moving in people's lives. I've seen moving in people's lives. He steered in my, in my life. And I, I just felt like I had to make those choices. But it's funny you said, uh, you mentioned that. I was thinking maybe that's why I attend a Presbyterian church now. Because everything <laughs> is so... <laughs> <laughs> There's still part of me. Where you know these strong emotions feel and scare me, and mm-hmm. and I'm very uh, I'm very uh, restrained and, and measured, and that that's a lot to do with the way I grew up. When you spend your time in a foster home, mm-hmm. you don't know where your mother is, you don't know where your father is. You can't express your emotions. You can't be sad. You can't. You just have to keep everything in, and that, that mm-hmm. habit has unfortunately stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Thanks for diving into that because I was just like. I do believe the stories transform people and it is a false binary to put stories versus statistics and things like that. Right. But to, to hear how and why people stay, I think is the, is the, you know, the song, like the power of our testimony, you know what I mean? Yeah. When we, when we can articulate that as honestly as we can, then I think something happens when people say, okay, maybe I can stay too. Or maybe it's not, you know what I mean? Like it's not always this pretty cookie cutter kind of deal, but like, to be able to enter in and, and be in true relationship with other people, with God and with yourself, right? To, to be in relationship and seek out the shalom that he intended in the first place is just, yeah, I just think it's a great, I, ho- I hope there are more conversations like that because of this book. I appreciate it. Like, like, you know, you talk about entering in those difficult moments and staying, like a pivotal moment came for me in the book when I talked about going to that Bible study in suburban Chicago and I looked in yeah. there before I rang the doorbell and I hesitated and I was like, Oh God, nothing but white people. I don't <laughs> want to go in here and be the only black person. But I was like, no, go in there. And I rang that doorbell and I joined that Bible study for the first time in my life. I made, I became close friends with white people. And there were two young men who were my age, Paul and Andy, we became really tight friends that summer and that really changed me. So I always knew that fear isn't a reason to hold you back. That often when you're afraid of something, you're on the verge of something really beautiful and just stick with mm-hmm. it and some good things will happen. And that's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the, in the book that we just put out in Tamisa's book, um, she makes a big point of that, that fear is kind of the first thing that has to go when you want to see transformation happen. Um, yeah. You can't just, you, the, the things that pen you in, the things that keep you where you are and in your comfort zone um, are often the things holding you back a lot. And it's it's, inter- it's interesting because your story is one where you you experienced a lot of transformation by running into kind of standard issue white evangelicals. <laughs> and, yeah. and to me, you know, had completely the opposite story where she was, that that's what screwed her up was being entirely immersed mm-hmm. in that world. But it, it is, uh, yeah, you're saying basically the combination of losing that fear and that contact that you were talking about, having like positive contacts with people who are kind of with you on that on that mission, right? Like you said, like they're trying to accomplish something else with you. You actually had some people in that group yeah. who said a couple of things to you that I thought were that not necessarily profound, but like a higher level of insightful than I often now expect like looking back at at you know myself when i was just in like a suburban white evangelical environment you know having somebody say to you 
you know, you should definitely go be a journalist because you're going to have perspectives that so many people don't have oh, yeah. Yeah, just from yeah. having, having grown up in West Baltimore, like you're going to be able to write things and have insights that are actually an advantage to you in understanding the world. Like that's kind of, that's what we talk about now, Jonathan, that's centering and elevating mm-hmm. marginalized voices, right? Like that's, that's what that <laughs> is. And I just, I, I think it's interesting. You can, you know, it's, it's, I think another example of how you can find so many different kinds of truth in, in unexpected places that you might be afraid of. That's a great point. And I was thinking about something, how with all the hostility that I grew up with, grew up with toward white people, that some of the people that play key roles in helping me were white people and be more specific, that some of the white people who helped me the most were white Christians who struggled a lot with racism. Right. Like my aunt Mary. I mean, she struggled with, uh, you know, with racism, but there's a scene where I talk about when I, I finally read all these letters she wrote and I saw that she had changed and she gives me hope that people can change. Like we look at what's happening right now with white evangelicals in the church. It's clear they have a huge problem with racism and, 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 you know, the way they've lined up behind Trump. And that's really shocking to a lot of people. And you wonder, some people write them off and say, well, they just, they can't change, you know, don't even try to have dialogue with them. I, I can't say that because I've seen people my family change in ways I never imagined. Mm -hmm. Imagine that my Aunt Mary, the one who voted for Trump, who denied racism had anything to do with her, you know, decision to have nothing to do with me, who is now calling me talking about John Lewis, Black Lives Matter. I I, I see this change, man. It just just (laughs) gives me tremendous hope. And even the pastor at the integrated church I I went to in Atlanta, Nibs, this is a graduate group, group in Jim Crow South, thought that black people were subhuman. What happened? He moved to New York. He joined this anti-poverty program. We worked with black people on something larger than race. And that changed him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I talked to him yesterday. So I, I still have a lot of hope. I, I, don't, I don't think, particularly as Christians, we can write people off when we see somebody like a Saul becomes a Paul. That's, we shouldn't write people off. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want to compliment you both. You guys really read the book. I am so, man, I, I know how it is when I have to interview people and I got to read a book fast and, but you can really tell people who read the book. And I, I'm so honored that it didn't bore you and that you read the whole thing and you asked such good questions. I really appreciate it. Oh, it, it did not even come close to boring me. I was, not at all. <laughs> are you kidding me? Once a ghost shows up, I'm like, where is this going? <laughs> <laughs> but like, Cause it takes so much to write a book, yeah. you know, yeah. and like, and you know, for, for me and Cy and like the camp that we hang out with, like it, we're not gonna, at least, you know, we push each other. Like if we're going to write about something, we got to read the whole thing, you know, we don't need retractions <laughs> and like all that. And we're going to promote something. We want to promote what we want to promote, you know, and send out. And so that's, that's what I hope our subscribers and like the lead, the folks downstream of our, our influence, like get. No, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, because uh, it was a, a difficult story to tell. And, and I don't yeah. know, you know, my mother died when I was writing this. And mm. that was hard. It's just like, how do I put this in the story? And how do I grieve? And one of my favorite parts of the book is the end. When, mm. you know, I had to say, I don't know if we revealed this, but when I had to say goodbye to her. And I, mm. that was when the first time in my life I said, like, you know, I was ashamed of her when I was young because she was white. Mm. Then I was ashamed of her because she had schizophrenia. But at the very end of her life, 
when I really begin to think about the courage it took for a 19, 20 year old white woman to do what she did, that was the first time I like, I am proud to be her son. And I, it just took me so long to see that in her and to say goodbye to her that way um, was really tough. But, you know, they have that little beautiful, little fortuitous accident, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, this frigid winter landscape, we're saying goodbye and then just look in the sky and see the sun break through. It just really helped me a lot. And maybe mm. it's kind of corny and all, but she, I, I really begin to see she was an incredible woman. I always thought my father was the, the real badass. Because he was just, you know, he was a merchant marine. He was tough. He did what he wanted. But she was just as courageous, if not more, than he was. I I thought that part was beautiful. I okay. I have, um, there are people close to me in my life who have mental illness too. And to get to that point where you just see people, as you put it, for the hand they've been dealt. Yes. Right? What do they yes. do with the hand they were dealt? Not like, what are they on some other you know, how, how can they hold down a job or how can they be productive or whatever? And, and for you, I think to get to the point where you see your mom was dealt a really tough hand, not just with her own mental illness, with her mother's mental illness, with her father's alcoholism, with everything else. Yeah. And, and to see what a vibrant person she was when she was young and like how she made incredibly risky attempts to cross uh, bounds of racism and could not have seemingly cared less about the risk that that was to her <laughs> or, yes. or, you know, and your, and your dad was the same way. He was also extremely yeah. brave. Um, yeah. uh, you know, but to, to be able to see her through that lens, just what was the hand that she was dealt and what did she do with it? And from there you're able to say, I was proud to be her son. And I am in fact proof that like the world can change. Man, because y'all read the book. book. <laughs> <laughs> I just, that's, but that was, I don't know. That to me, that touches me like personally on, on just with relationships that I have. And that's, that is potent stuff, man. Like if more people thought that way, that would be uh, an incredible result of you writing this really beautiful mm-hmm. thing. Um, Thank you. So other, other than going to buy the book more than I imagined, <laughs> is there anything else you want people to do? Do you want people to follow you anywhere or any other work you or you you want to plug? No, no. I mean, um, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I, I think to pick up on what you said about my mom, if, mm-hmm. if, if anybody could take something away from this is I, I talk about at the end, as you mentioned, the kind of courage it took for her to do what she did. And, and I, and I gave a little Ted talk recently where I said, I really don't know, I still don't understand why she took those risks. And I said, I, I don't think I ever will. But what I said is that, just think about it. When my mom got together with my father in 1963, interracial marriage was illegal. A black man could easily get killed for walking with the white woman mm. down the mm. street. That was the world. The idea of interracial marriage and biracial children being open, that was like unheard of. And look at what's, look at today. Oh man, I see interracial couples, biracial children everywhere, and no one thinks about it. And I'm like, how did that happen? And the, the message I wanted, you know, people to take away from the book, if anything, is I talk about that thing what I call good contagion. That mm. when people like my mom and that generation, there were others like her, her like mother and father. They didn't wait for a politician to decide or a judge to decide. They said, "This is right. I'm willing to take a risk." People are people. And she went out and she took these risks. She paid a price for it. But because of people like her, 
they created that that conditions where it became a norm and, and nobody thinks twice about it. So I think ordinary people have tremendous power and we shouldn't forget that because I, I see so many people who feel hopeless. Things can't change. And I like look at my mom. Look at what people in her, mm-hmm. what she did. She had no power in the world. But through the power of what she did, my father and others like her at that time, they created this new world where nobody thinks twice about interracial marriage or biracial children. Nobody's peddling that sick stuff that is bad for the children or it's sinful. You couldn't even say that stuff now, get away with it. So I, I just think, I, I hope people remember the power of her example and how what ordinary people can do. Amen. That's a brilliant place to end. <laughs> um John, John Blake, thank you so much for being on Shake the Dust with us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please remember to go to ktfpress.com and consider becoming a paid subscriber. And remember, until June 19th, we have that sale going 50% off an entire year's subscriptions. That's just $35 for the whole year. You can get that by going to ktfpress.com slash season three. That's ktfpress.com slash season and the number three. Thanks again for listening. Our theme song, as always, is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam, and we will see you all back here in two weeks. It's you said the Glad Media Award, but it's G L A A D. Do they say Glad? Is that how they pronounce it? Yeah, that's how they say it. Mm-hmm. I look at my because there's two A's. My screen reader pronounces it Glad. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny.